Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein. On today's show, our guest is Kirk Pearson, composer and founder at Dogbotic. Dogbotic is a full-service music and sound studio, a radical multimedia arts workshop, and an open-source creative technology lab. Radio Survivor's co-hosts and co-producers are Jennifer Waits and Paul Reismandel. Both Jennifer Waits and I now have taken this class uh, from Kirk Pearson's Dogbotic Lab uh, that was uh, getting a cheap Chinese and, you know, uh, an adorable cheap Chinese uh, cassette Walkman in the mail and taking it apart and turning it into a musical instrument and learning all sorts of things about the history of sound work and tape along the way. And uh, Paul didn't take that class. But Paul went ahead and bought two of the Byron Static cassette tape. I bought three on accident, as it turns out. <laughs> and I have, I have taken them apart. And, and, well, I mean, Kirk, I mean, I think a burning question I have, and that maybe our listeners might share, is why at this moment in time, in 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 the second decade of the 21st century uh you know more than 50 years after the invention of the cassette recorder and arguably probably some 20 years into its decline as a sort of mainstream recording and listening medium why is this the time in which it seems that you and many other people are interested in it as a creative medium. That's a great question. Well, <clears throat> well, I'd say, so, so I was born in 1994. I grew up with cassettes. Um, and then, you know, I, like many other people around the year 2000, just, you know, kind of turned away and never looked back. <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, I came to make music in the aughts. That's, you know, that's when I learned to compose. And so like a lot of the students that we have, which are actually people in their teens and 20s, uh, uh, you know, we, our, our understanding of creating music has come entirely through the, you know, the digital audio workstation, right? And when you're working in, you know, your Pro Tools, your Ableton, your Logic, you know, whatever, um, it's, uh, it's, you know, there's a great blessing because absolutely, you know, anything is possible and everything is tweakable and touchable. But after a while, you begin to realize that nothing is tactile. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a ton of expressivity that comes with, you know, putting your hands on something and actually messing around with, you know, with, uh, with sound. There's some, you know, over academic uh, Marshall McLuhan quote, but effectively it's something along the lines of, you know, that's what's great about the medium because the medium is plastic. You can pick it up, you can throw it on the ground, you can twist it all around. And, you know, that's especially true with tape. So it's, uh, it's, um, it's greatly fun for, I think a lot of people to, you know, realize just how expressive this, you know, um, this mechanism can be. And it's also just a, it's a fun way to have people get their feet wet in, you know, experimental music that you know uh i think it's we, we can talk about what experimental music means and stuff like that later but i think you know i think it's greatly fun i think it's a it's a it's a nice way to get involved with composition and to remind yourself that composition doesn't have to come from some ivory tower so i think somebody who 
is a little older than you who mm-hmm. for whom cassettes were you know one something which they used i think often there's a sense especially maybe somebody who came f- from a music background wanted to record themselves and create music um you know cassettes were something you battled with mm-hmm. <laughs> right because let's just say 1994 if you right. were a musician a composer who wanted to create music outside of a of a of a high end studio or sort of mm-hmm. a studio at home you know you had a, you could use a cassette recorder right and then we had you know sort of multi track cassette recorders so called porta studios so you could record four things simultaneously on separate tracks or eight even Mm-hmm. And maybe if you had a little more money, uh, you might be able to invest in a big reel-to-reel recorder. But such a thing might cost a month's wages, <laughs> depending on yeah. what you do. And, and I think what you're driving at, Paul, because I, I brought this up to some friends of mine who were four-track Porta Studio artists uh, when that was the only tool available. And one of the things they brought up that I love dearly, but they don't miss at all, is the act of punching in to make a change, a change that on a digital audio workstation on a DAW would be two mouse clicks. Well, but even in, 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 at this on a time, machine becomes a becomes like a um, a high pressure target practice, like a like an archery bullseye. But like, all recording was change. like that until right. it was digital, right? So even if you were Steely Dan, you know, in the most expensive studio in Los Angeles. Uh, you still had to make your guitar player punch in. You still had to have that timing. That is still the way it was done, more, even if they the were had more hands. Even if day. they were enormous, you know, thousand dollar reels of tape, you know. And so, you know, and 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 that's about the time, you know. And I use that moment, you know, say about when you were born, nineteen ninety four, because it's also the time at which digital recording starts to become a little accessible to the to the person who isn't working in a big professional studio. Um, but it's still not like what we know it today. It's still a little more cumbersome, often still based on some sort of tape. And so you have all, all the complications of dealing with tape. And so it, 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 it's fascinating to me that, you know, the person who was working in this in 1994, if they were working with cassettes in particular, they're doing so because desperation is perhaps too harsh of a word but it's because it was the what they could afford it was what they had at hand and certainly there were even musicians at the time who chose it for aesthetic reasons or because the 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 practicality the the portability not being tied to a studio or a piece of equipment that weighed you know a hundred pounds um was 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 also interesting and so that's why I'm fascinated by this sort of this turn back and and I understand I understand the, the the tactile question that you brought out right that that it's something you can touch and you can feel and work with but you know if not just the it wasn't just the um sort of physical properties Right, it's fragility, the needing to like say accurately start and stop the tape or start the recording at at a, at a in a precise moment. Um, but it was also, I mean, people struggled against the sound quality, right? <laughs> they struggled against tape hiss, struggled against uh, uh, tapes that might get damaged and have dropouts. Um, you know, th- those were also uh, elements of, of the cassette that I mean. Uh, arguably have not changed <laughs> in that time. It, arguably, in fact, the cassette recorders you buy now are not as good as the ones you could have bought 25 years ago. 
Um, so, so well, that, yeah, that's the interesting part of the project. I think even taking the, the cassette hacking workshop is we all know that the quality of these cheap walk, you know, faux, these cheap versions of Walkmans. I like um, to use the word Walkman. Walkman. <laughs> Walkmans. That that's part of the charm. Yeah, can you talk about that, Kirk? Like, why? What is the charm? Why? Why is that? Uh, perhaps that aesthetic uh, of that that's brought on by um, its its limitations, both physically and sonically. Why? Why is that an appeal in all of this as well? Well, when the thing you're working with has limitations that you're aware of, it's kind of like you have a collaborator, like earnestly. I think um, it's certainly not about practicality, right? Uh, I think, um, you know, I think it's I, I would be the first to say that working with cassettes is very inconvenient. But, you know, uh, what's nice is that working with cassettes in 2021 is nothing like working with cassettes in 1994 or, you know, 1970, for that matter. You know, so you you get to have all the ease of computer editing that you want, but also all of the, you know, the affordances of tape that make it so interesting. And uh, like, uh, I don't know, this is a weird analogy, but I, I took a I took a darkroom photography class just like in my spare time a couple of years ago uh, before, well, before the pandemic. And uh, a quality of it that I really liked and didn't expect I would really like was uh, the fact that you just couldn't undo anything you knew you had two tries to get it right and it was going to work because if it didn't work, you would go home with nothing. And that's really nice. You know, the fact that, uh, the fact that it has limitations because, you know, frankly in the DAW, you know, when everything is possible, you're not going to do anything. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think, I think many creators, you know, would agree with that, right? Whatever, whatever medium they come from, whatever uh, school of practice they come from, you know, in the same way that photography did not uh, end our our desire to have paintings, mm-hmm. and and the development of of oil based paints didn't end people's fascination with watercolor. You know, mm-hmm. I think you know we we start seeing kind of a multimedia universe even when we're talking about non electronic media. And no, absolutely, yeah. It makes me think about it makes me think about live radio versus recorded radio. Also, Kirk, that you know, much like working in a dark room, you know, that's like doing a live show where yeah, you you can't edit. It's that it is what it is, and there's something very exciting and energizing about that. And it's very different doing a live show versus a recorded show for that reason. The stakes are different. Absolutely. I think there you're delineating a, a key difference between live radio and podcasting that I feel like a lot of people gloss over. But yeah, you're just you're going to tell a different story <laughs> depending on, you know, literally how, you know, ephemeral your your medium is. And I wonder if we could maybe put some uh concrete details to the, to the uh, we we're being a little abstract right now and it's certainly oh, sure. that's where my <laughs> where and that's where my head often is. Um so when we're talking about you know, cassette hacking, like give us a sense, like, like what does that actually mean? What, what are some of the applications which someone who is cassette hacking uh, might put these little machines to? Yeah, well, they're far reaching. Cassette hacking was just the easy way we could come up with saying in two words what you were going to do and having people more or less understand it. But the way I describe it to people is we're teaching you how to open up a Walkman, 
We'll tell you how it works, and then you'll get to do experimental surgery on the inside, so it starts to do all sorts of things that the manufacturer never intended for you to do. Um, and what's beautiful about the you know doing this with a Walkman, circuit bending a Walkman, is uh, you're not you're not limited to any fixed vocabulary of sounds because all of these techniques can be used to change every sound that you that you put into your Walkman, but also literally how your Walkman records. So you're actually changing a system of interpretation, uh, which I think is really nice. So it's it's very easy, even with the you know the most you know rudimentary bends you can do with the Walkman to end up with sounds that are absolutely wild and that you've never heard before. Well, I think people I, I remember. Are, I, I want to I dig in a little bit there uh, because you know I think people are familiar now, of course, with with digital effects, right? And and the idea that you know even on a on a Zoom call you could you could pitch your voice, you could change all sorts of things. So when you talk about changing the sound on on the tape, I mean. I mean, is it just like having a guitar pedal? Is it just like, you know, is it like having some effects unit? Is it like having one of the funny little toys you can buy, uh, you know, that's like a little megaphone and, and it changes your voice? Like what, 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 what kind of things do happen to the sound in and out of, of, of a modified recorder? Or what are your, what are you, what's your range of possibilities there? Uh, well, yeah. Also, Jennifer, what were you going to say? Because I feel like you had an, a good anecdote for this question. Uh, well, I mean, my anecdote is, you know, during during a workshop you talked about how you might get different sounds out of it that happen only one time. Mm -hmm. And so you should make a recording of it right away because some of the stuff is unexpected there, you know, there might be uh, specific things that you're doing to hack your Walkman that are predictable, but there might be other unexpected things. And my anecdote was Mm -hmm. that we did some hacking. And when I, um, I put a tape in that I had recorded um, and I, I played it on the on on the other side, so on the side that I didn't record on, and it actually played backwards, which nobody talked about that even being a possibility. In fact, we we had talked about can you make a backwards recording, and everybody mm-hmm. said no. And so that was I don't know what happened, but it was extremely exciting to hear. I had recorded some some radio broadcasts, mm-hmm. and then you could hear it backwards uh, something that you would normally only be able to achieve uh, you know i remember doing this on reel to reel editing mm-hmm. where you could actually make your voice go backwards by doing some splicing and cutting <laughs> and pasting I would, I would add to this like the collage of ideas that were that were building that like if if you have a tape loop which is a limited amount of time going in a literal loop uh recording onto it and then adding to it and subtracting from it is a creative and destructive process at the same time. You're destroying what came before on the loop while you're building something new. And that, that, that form is only possible in that tape loop. I mean, yes, you could have a guitar pedal that, that does something similar. But really, again, also because of what Jennifer just mentioned, that sometimes the equipment does something unexpected. Uh, it, this... This moment where you ha- are, are working with the sound right. on so tape. a loop is one uh, you could play something backward. What what are some other things that 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 you because there's limits, right? You know, it's it is not like having a digital effects processor where you sort of ultimately limitless in all the ways you can change a sound and process it. 
uh, or plugins on your computer. Um, it seems to me there are limits. So maybe Kirk, you can you can explain a little bit like what are the things that 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 you can do, and then you know I don't know if that pushes if that begs the question on what you can't do. Well, yeah. So these Walkman are pretty versatile. Uh, also, Jennifer, we can chat about why you were getting backwards sound because there is an interesting reason for that. But the, uh, I mean, so there's quite a bit you could do. The first thing that we do, we spend the first night talking about tape transport and we fiddle around with the erase head and we realize that as you remove the erase head, you can actually multi-track over yourself. Um, we could do a whole lot of interesting things with the playhead too, by giving it, you know, all sorts of different uh, magnetized objects as, you know, like sounds to interpret that are not actually on tape. Uh, but, you know, the, the big, you know, exciting part of the workshop is really when we break open uh, into the circuit board in the back and we show you how to do all sorts of interesting things by effectively rerouting uh, electric charge from some parts of the circuit to other parts of the circuit to change how the electronics are interpreting the signal that's on the tape. So you can obviously do things like make the tape go, you know, faster and higher pitched or slower and lower pitched, or you can make the volume level go up and down. Uh, and we really expand into that on the third day when we start building all of these, you know, additional circuits on, uh, on prototyping boards uh, that do all sorts of things like, you know, uh, like an LFO that can change the rate that the motor goes or a sequencer that you can program in to play pitches that your Walkman will read back, you know, so. So, that, so when you do that sequencer, does that mean basically you're making your Walkman play at different speeds? So if you have a tone, uh, then you can pitch that tone up and down? Precisely. So you can you can write out effectively like a list of voltages. And if you tell your motor, hey, this voltage, now this voltage, now this voltage, you can get it to turn at different speeds and thus you can change the pitch of your sound. Exactly. So if you record a drone or something like that, you can actually have it play back a little melody and you can change the melody as it loops around and around. So that's that's and that's sort of a version of of an instrument that was uh, invented in the 1960s and used on a lot of recordings like the Mellotron, in which you had tape loops of individual instruments and you played them at different speeds, I think, uh, in order to produce different uh, different tones. Is that correct? Well, well, sorry, Eric, what were you, yeah. what were you, yeah. what were you going to say? Yeah, Paul is, Paul is right that, you know, in, essentially you're building a micro Mellotron, like a, like a little clunky, adorable Mellotron. Um, I, I think one of the things that's useful about playing with cassette tapes as a jumping off point for artists who have already have access to the most versatile sound work tool in the history of humankind the the digital audio workstation is that partly like we when you get your hands on a little cassette tape and you get to break it and you get your hands on a walkman and you get to hack it you're also um sort of walking the path of artists from the previous century who didn't have those tools and why that's fun and educational is that um the techniques that were developed because they had only these analog tools um create create pathways for artists that become metaphors that then are built into the new computer tools like digital audio workstations are giant like you know it's it's software and code but it's all 
a digital representation of what the sound was doing before computers with with tape like and i mean it's similar to that you you know you don't have a word processor and they don't call them word processors anymore but you don't have you can't you don't type on a computer a blank you know they're still called pages have you ever heard the word skewamorph oh it's a it's a great word yeah skewamorph is a design term uh where a designed object intentionally uh pays homage to a another version of that or what it represents so I think a lot of classic examples in the sound design world are at least, you know, when you when you unlock your phone, you you literally hear the sound of something unlocking. When you when you take a photo on your phone, you hear the sound of a shutter. But you know, likewise, you you know, icons used to have a lot of drop shadow, which was, you know, super skeuomorphic. And now the design world has kind of shied away from that. But it's a very interesting concept. It's kind of there to just say, hey, calm down. <laughs> you know what this is. Right. And to the point at which often that uh, the symbolism fades f- from its its antecedent, uh, you know, for instance, still often the icon to save something in software is a picture of a floppy disk, which many folks now using computers have never had exposure to and never had to use. Yeah, right. But, you know, but tracks, you know, the digital audio workstation is going to be is going to function with tracks and those tracks are you have a one-to-one relationship with, you know, uh, with, with, with tape, the tracks that were available on tape and, and, you know, the edit that you make is a cut on a computer and it used to be a cut with scissors. And I think that there's something, I think that there's something really important. I think if computers had come along to do sound work and had come before the tape machines had had been used for a, a, a handful of lifetimes, then they wouldn't they wouldn't have the same functions. They would have a different set of design functions. They might not even uh, work as well without the three lifetimes worth of of tape work that went on in so many artists' lives. I got a weird anecdote for you here that I don't know if you can use in the podcast, but I think it's a good one. And I haven't talked about it very much, but it's about your, your yeah, like when you cut on a word processor, it's a, it's a skewomorph about your, your cutting out words. Um, so this is just an interesting, I don't know, uh, it, w- it was an interesting story posed to me that made me think about like the dangers of skewomorphs in design. Uh, but it was, uh, I don't know if I can say who told it to me, actually. But um, but they told me a story about way back in the day when they were working for Microsoft. They got into a big argument with another guy who was developing, you know, he, w- he was writing a bit of code that would later become the algorithms for cut, copy, and paste. You know, y- you can say... <laughs> you can say quite successfully. Uh, and uh, they got into a big argument because this guy said that there shouldn't be a copy paste function, there should be a copy site function, which I think is really interesting. And so like, this was right around when Donald Trump was elected. So, you know, our, you know, the conversation was particularly, you know, lively, but it it was interesting to think about what, what would the world be like if instead of a copy paste function embedded into everything that we use, we had copy site where, when you saw some pasted text somewhere, you would be able to see immediately where that. Text oh, you came mean from. cite C I T E as in citation. C I T E exactly. So, but then imagine that. Imagine you're watching the news, and then all of a sudden you hear a couple words of Donald Trump in a speech. What if you could pause the news, click on that speech, 
and expand the speech to see the context that it came from. Like, I think in some very fundamental ways, it would change about how we think about reproducing other people's media. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just, I don't know. That's the thing I think about a lot. <laughs> I have kind of a, I have a big so, sort of overarching question because mm-hmm. I know that, that you have, you know, pretty extensive schooling and composition and that's your background. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm curious, I'm curious about this transition from, from composing to hacking and, and were you always hacking or was that, was there some sort of revelation that you had some sort of something that you um, came to understand that led you to start hacking as part of your practice? Boy, well, uh, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, first of all, I wouldn't say I have extensive schooling. Uh, I have a I have a bachelor of music in composition, which really does not mean very much. But the uh, I, uh, I I guess to some extent, like, um, well, two of the things that always excited me about music were one that there was always a community aspect to it, like you know. You know, there's a Pablo Casals quote that says, uh, I'm a human being first, I'm a musician second, and I'm a cellist third, which I really like. I think that, you know, he, he's got it in the right order, that at the end of the day, you know, we are all making music because it's, you know, it's about other people. It's about other people listening to the music and you making music with other people. So I feel like there was, you know, there was making sounds with other people was the thing that, that really motivated me. And the other one was just finding sounds that I hadn't heard before. So... Hacking is kind of a lovely way to do that. It is a very social activity and, you know, it's fun and it's, you know, it's easy to encourage other people in it. Uh, and also it, you know, it doesn't feel like I'm, I'm trotting in ground that's been well trodden necessarily. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I still do consider myself a composer more than a hacker. I don't like, I don't even call myself an inventor necessarily. Uh, but like, yeah, r- really like, that, that that's what I do. I look for new and interesting sounds and try to find interesting orders of arranging them. And cassettes are not the entirety of your practice, right? Oh, and, no. and, and not the entirety of, of what you do with, with dogbotic. And mm-hmm. so maybe you can talk a little bit about why you decided to start what you call a sound laboratory. And you can tell us a little bit more about like, what, what does that even mean? Right. So that's a great question. Uh, so Dogbotic was founded about three years ago by me here in Berkeley, California. And um, uh, initially, uh, we were we were a sound studio. So you would come to us if you, you know, if you had a film or, you know, a, a television documentary or a PSA or something or an app. And we would, you know, make music for that or sound design it or come up with a whole bunch of, you know, interesting sounds for it. Sometimes we would invent an instrument specifically for a thing like for an installation or something like that so it was um it was it was interesting work and we still do it that's still primarily um well it's still a lot of what i do but over the pandemic uh when work uh work uh, quieted down for a bit i started doing this uh workshop about uh building synthesizers which uh jennifer is is currently in and uh, it was initially supposed to be like a one-time thing, but I had a lot of fun with it, and people seemed to really enjoy it. So then, then that kind of continued, and now I guess I'm an educator. Funny how that happens. So, uh, <laughs> so that continued, and then cassette hacking followed, and then uh, I'm now joined by two other people that work with me, Katie Luo, who's our 
uh, our manager and like our, our operations expert. Um, and she's also a, a superb concert pianist uh, who regularly plays around. She lives in Hawaii, teaches at the University of Hawaii. And she, uh, so every once in a while I look at her, you know, Instagram and it's, her playing the celeste in front of, you know, a giant orchestra. And then uh, Sean Hallowell, who uh, is our technical director, who he lives in San Francisco. He was also actually, he was originally a student of the workshop. Uh, and he's currently in Iceland because uh, he got a grant to build big video synthesizers for the elves, or I don't know, who, whoever whoever's out there. Well, we're going to have to talk to Sean about Icelandic video Oh, his work is wonderful, yeah. Soon. Kirk, you are working on a class with Dogbotic mm-hmm. that you that's called the Ear Retraining Workshop. Yes. And you described it as a non-academic class. Uh, like, I wonder why you made that distinction. Right. Hmm. Can I send a, can I send an image over this chat? I don't know if I can. <laughs> you should describe the image to us. I should the describe audience. the image to you. Well, okay. Well, yeah, it's hard to, uh, so, uh, every workshop we do is, you know, like I, you know, I, I do have a design background and so I, I really like pretty packaging, you know? So, uh, we work with a, with a whole bunch of designers and, uh, ear retraining is going to be a really interesting workshop because, uh, what you're actually going to get is a binder. <laughs> you're going to get a really thick binder in the mail that's filled with a bunch of really, really fascinating stuff. And then every week as we go through the workshop, we build something and then you just have a whole bunch of resources to peruse on your own. So but, what is uh, ear retraining? Yeah, well, we should I think start we need, there. We need, we need to explain so, to, to folks, yes. you know, who, who maybe haven't spent all their time thinking about this. <laughs> when, oh, this is this is true. This is what I've been thinking about primarily for the last six months. Um, yeah, let me let me start again. So, Eerie Training is a uh, is a workshop that uh, I've been working on with my good friend Nick Dunstan, who is a, a bassist and composer, uh, and it's called Eerie Training: uh, Media Manipulation for the Musical Mind. Uh, the basic idea with ear retraining is it, it's not like the ear training you're thinking of. It's, it is kind of like music theory, but it's also not like music So what theory. is ear training? I mean, I think we can't take for granted that our audience uh, are all musicians, right? No, yeah, 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 yeah. Go oh, ahead. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, I'll get into it. But effectively what this is, is it's a workshop that's going to change the way that you listen to sound. So <laughs> every week uh, we're going to show you uh, a totally different musical technique that you can use to make a new and interesting sound. Uh, and all of the interesting things that you can do with it. So I mean things like one week uh, it, we're talking about r- records. We're talking about physical uh, physical impressions of recording, and we are going to provide you a flexi disc. We're going to talk about the importance of this bizarre medium, which is a flexible plastic sheet that used to be sent out by like political campaigns and magazine advertisers uh, as a really inexpensive vinyl record. So we're actually, we commissioned uh, a musician to record a whole bunch of pieces we composed for the FlexiDisc. And we're going to have you build a record player. We're going to listen back to the pieces. And then we're going to talk about which pieces most successfully made their way onto the FlexiDisc. A weird anecdote, but like, have you ever listened to jazz from like the 1900s? Like the, the first decade of the, 20, of the 20th century? You notice there are never any string basses. Like it was, a, it was a hard time if you were an acoustic bass player, and that's because acoustic basses picked up really lousy on those big acoustic recording mechanisms. What picked up really great were tubas. 
That's why all of the orchestrations from that period are tuba crazy. It's not because people particularly liked the sound. It's just because it picked up well on the recording medium. And that's kind of the idea that we're going to be channeling through all of ear retraining. It's learning to think about the form of recorded sound rather than the content and learning how to kind of, you know, use and abuse those forms in order to make unique sounds that other media cannot make. That's fun. Is, Let's- is some of that retraining, you know, because I think about, as somebody, you know, I listen to experimental music mm-hmm. and, and noise. And, and so I have a very broad understanding of what music is. And is some of that embedded in ear retraining is rethinking what music is, what noise is? I think definitely. I think that's a big part of all the workshops we do. Like, I am not a noise musician, like, by a long shot. But I still, like, kind of, we have the understated goal of we want to confuse people about what music is. We think that's a very good goal. I think the, uh, I think the, I don't know. I feel like a lot of composers have some sort of imposter syndrome because they don't think about everything they do as music. But frankly, like, who cares if what you're doing is music? Is it interesting and is it creatively fulfilling to you? Like, that's the important thing that you should be worrying about. So I, I definitely think that. I think the more confused we get about what music is and what music is supposed to be and who a musician is for that matter, uh, the more the more interesting art we're going to all be making. That that's something yeah. I've been thinking about a lot is who is a musician and you know personally I don't think of myself as a musician but some of these things are um are, are ways that we can rethink whether or not we are a musician. You know, are you mm-hmm. a musician if you do a radio show in which you're mixing things and experimenting with sound and loops? Um, is that is that being a musician or an artist? Probably. Uh, but, but like you said, sometimes there's imposter syndrome. If you don't have a musical background, you know, are you, is it okay to call yourself a musician? You know, perhaps the right label is sound worker. Sound worker. Well, You're and, a sound worker. And, that, and that's, and that's what I like about, um, you know, some of, some of your approach is about demystifying technology and also Mm -hmm. kind of opening up spaces for people. And so maybe talk about that ethos. Why is demystification so important to, to you as an educator? I love that question. Uh, So demystifying is important to me. Well, twofold. One is that I, I love the stuff I'm teaching. Like I, 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 I don't know. I think, uh, I think physics is amazing. And I think a lot of people have really bad taste in their mouth of a lot of, you know, based on a lot of their math and science education. And it's kind of nice to convince people that that doesn't have to be that way. Uh, but, you know, I think more importantly, uh, frankly, we, we, we don't live in a world that incentivizes you to figure out how your stuff works. You know, uh, you know, we, we live in a world where you're incentivized to throw stuff out instead of fixing it. Uh, and where you're always encouraged to consume more. And I think it's, uh, I think it's important to convince people that nothing that you own is magic. <laughs> like, I, I, I know it's easy to, you know, to, to make fun of that and say, like, you, you know, like, I'm hoping to drain the world of magic. But, like, I still think there is, there is so much stuff that you can be fascinated with. But, you know, remember that your computer isn't magic. It is a machine, and you can learn how it works, and it's not that hard, right? If you start presuming your computer is magic, that's how you throw an election, Right. 
If you don't understand how electromagnetism works, that's how you end up, you know, burning down a cell phone tower because someone told you it caused coronavirus, right? Like, you know, so I, I feel like at the end of the day, there really is kind of a social importance to that, even though, uh, even though it's not, it might not be immediately obvious. Um, oh. And it, it is kind of empowering, too, to realize that, you know, you have the ability to make and fix these things. And also by extension, that means the Korgs and Rollins and teenage engineerings of the world, as much as we may love them, are not the arbiters of new sounds. And what you're rolling out there are prominent manufacturers of musical equipment, right? Yes, and, and exactly. I, right. Electronic music. Equipment. Electronic music equipment in particular, right? And I think that that interplay between sort of maker and tools, um, you know, it becomes very trenchant. It seems to me to be have become very trenchant, you know, in our time right now, regardless of kind of what it is you're, you make. If you're a photographer, it's easy to get obsessed with cameras and lenses and equipment and want to sure. take pictures of test charts to make sure that your sharpness is as good as it can be and argue about it with people online. And I think that, that the online interaction is, is a fairly key one. And, and I'm certain if you're a carpenter, you can have the same arguments about saws and and uh, and hammers and find thousands of reviews on YouTube or TikTok or elsewhere of somebody arguing about why this particular hammer is simply the one you must have compared to the one that your dad gave you and that you've been using for the last 25 years. Right. And, and, and I do think, you know, you said take the magic out of it. And it seems to me that that's part of it is that we imbue some of these objects with magic and view them as magical. And that I, I will never be, you know, a real hip hop producer until I have an MPC, right? I will, I will never be, you know, a real uh, photographer until I get a high end Nikon digital SLR. I will never be this, that, or the same guitar that Jimmy Page played or whatever. Pick, pick your, pick your area. Um, but I mean, at some level it's just stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. It's really easy to fall into the consumerist trap. Like that's, that's how the entire world is set up. <laughs> Uh, you know, and right, you know, obviously it's so easy to get into the habit of, you know, yeah, as soon as I get product X, then I can finally get serious about making music and like, don't kid yourself. So how did you, how did you avoid that? Like how, what, what it was in your path? <laughs> I don't know if I have. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Right. I mean, because mm -hmm. it, for all of us, myself included, you know, I could, I could sit here and, 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 and bring out this, the, these ideas and also recognizing my own complex relationship with, with the idea and my own wanting to, to, you know, save up for a teenage engineering OP one synthesizer, right? Like that sounds great to me. And it sounds like I can do all these things. Um, but also could be something that I buy and play with for a few minutes and it sits on a shelf now, uh, for, for sure. a number of ways. So, you know, is, is, is this idea of hacking, this idea of understanding the tools and being able to make me possibly make your own, or at least, uh, is that part of, trying to mediate that relationship with the consumerist aspect of, of this all? Uh, possibly. I mean, it, it, this is not meant to be, you know, necessarily a polemic against capitalism, but it is, uh, you know, it, it's, it, hopefully it makes you think a little bit, you know, I, I, you know, obviously I'm a composer. I, you know, I have all sorts of instruments that I've purchased and not made, but you know, 
they have, you know, they have served me well. I, I'm not saying don't purchase new stuff. Obviously. <laughs> right, right. No. Saying, no, it's more of a, be, be aware, uh, be aware that you know it, it's you that's making the music in the end, and you know, you know, a new tool is is a means to a new technique. Well, but, I think that, you know, that that's kind of what I was talking. It's like all. modulating that relationship. I mean, even if we mm-hmm. take it to sort of radio and podcasting, you know, the the, the, sure. the entry question for a podcaster is always, "What is the gear I need to buy?" Right. What, what, what microphone do I need to buy? What What is all the best stuff I need to buy so I can make my podcast? Yeah. And, and, well, and also, and there's also a fetishization of that too. Right. Like the having the trappings, you know, can make you feel. You know, having the tools of the trade, I think, makes people feel legit, too. And I think think that's it. Totally. You hit the nail on the head. I would answer the question that you posed to Kirk. I'm just going to steal it for myself and bring it back to something that Kirk mentioned earlier. It was that as a podcaster, it's not about what gear you buy. It's about what people you choose to work with and who you're talking to and what your intentions are when you bring them into your show conversations it's 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 not it's not the gear it's the ideas and it's not the things it's the people and then even and to take that even further when you choose to be on the radio or choose to broadcast your ideas through a podcast it's not it's not the apps that you get on or the charts that you hit it's the audience that you reach um is i mean that's the entire purpose and so whatever you can do to to serve your audience, you know, and yes, sometimes that is a microphone that doesn't sound bad, but there's, there's so many options. Kirk, I want to go back to the flexi. Oh piece, yeah. The flexi disc. Hey, so this flexi is disc. a record yes. made out of the cheapest possible plastic. I believe radio survivor in the 300 and something episodes we've, we've done on sound and, and recording and radio. I believe the flexi disc has been, uh, has has had an honorable mention maybe once or twice. Uh, it's it 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 could arrive in the mail in the middle of a magazine. That's how I remember. It. I was it's- going to say that exactly where you tear it out of your magazine, and I feel like there were some. This doesn't even make sense to me, but I feel like on the back of a cereal box there was a record I could play at one point. Yeah, it was I a wonder, new dawn. So, um, did uh, in preparing for the ear retraining workshop have you done research into the origins of the flexi disc oh yes we do we actually have a uh, a, a professor of sociology who researches flexi disc is one of the contributors for this project it's uh it's really fun um if you, you must connect a- us with them <laughs> oh oh <laughs> i know i would be delighted to what if, also what if just learned- a- Oh, go ahead. Uh, j- just a fun little thing that I-, I learned while doing this research. Probably my favorite flexi disc story. Richard Nixon, when he was running for president, uh, well, the second time, uh, he sent out flexi discs it, like to a, tr- in a tremendously large number in the hundreds of thousands that contained a campaign song called Nixon's The One. And the lyrics, which I just need to tell you because they're delicious. <clears throat> when they look back... On what he's done, they will say, Nixon's the one. <laughs> How ominous is your political campaign song? Proved it's to be 100% n- Not right. known to be uh, someone possessing of a lot of, uh, of introspection, I think, uh, Richard Nixon. 
No, no. Uh, but yeah, no. So I, I, I think flexi discs are wonderful. I think, uh, you know, like there is there is an ephemerality to them as well. And so the kinds of things you'll find on flexi discs are really interesting. Uh, like it's a uh, it, effectively this is like a cassette hacking workshop every week. But instead of cassettes, we're dealing with flexi discs and shortwave radios and digital samplers and all sorts of stuff. Oh, well, like what are you doing with shortwave radios? Well, we are building a shortwave radio. Um, during, uh, during one of the weeks. Yeah. We have you build a very, very rudimentary radio. Is it like a crystal um, radio it, that requires no power or is it an actual sort of active receiver that would use a battery or, or power? Uh, currently I have an active receiver model. Uh, but honestly it's because it's, uh, well, it sounds better. And also it's cheaper than shipping out, uh, crystal earphones, which are surprisingly expensive. I didn't. Goodness. I didn't realize that. Um, but yeah, they run you like seven, eight bucks a, an individual unit, and they're very quiet anyway. So you know. Uh, so yeah, we don't. We don't need that. We're talking about like a foxhole radio, is what they're often known oh, as well, yeah, yeah, a yeah. crystal crystal receiver that 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 produce sound only based upon the the, the electromagnetic waves in in the air. Um, yeah, I'd love to do a, it's not eerie training, but I would love to do a, a, a weekend workshop that's all like building desert island radios, because you could totally build a working radio out of, you know, a pencil and a razor blade and, a, <laughs> and some coils of wire. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it, um, it's totally possible. It harkens back to uh, Radio Survivor episodes where we've had conversations about um, radios that were produced, contraband radios that were produced inside of prisons. Uh, mm. Both as receivers and as uh, transmitters, yeah, transmitters, yeah, to to make radio, to send radio out into the world, um, and talk about hacking. You know, yeah. the prisoners would do various projects so that they could eavesdrop on communication happening amongst the people in charge at the prison. So very that's amazing, very clever. Wait. That's a that's that's a class I want to take right there. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's great. Prison, it's a radio survivor, right? Prison communication <laughs> hacking. Um, I'm wondering if the flexi disc. Like, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about. Um, well, I mean, I'll, first I'll just tell my flexi disc story. My my Please. I think my one and only flexi disc is a. Uh, it came in the back of a cheap children's book, and it was like it was a song about Alf. The sitcom Alien, the, yeah, Alien Life Terrifying, form. yeah. Um, I agree, and it was yeah, cheap, uh, uh, throwaway, a throwaway record. Which records were not, you know, in the eighties, records were not cheap. In the sixties, records were not cheap, and so um, it's uh, there's something I'm driving at, and I don't know what I'm driving at, but I, I you know, we we know that um, in the world of of uh, sound and ideas and radio culture and, and audiences and listening. We know that, that uh, the existence of vinyl records, you know, had an impact on the culture of listening, the culture of sound. And I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, we've had, we had episodes where we've talked to academics who studied, you know, uh, where, you know, how these vinyl recordings of uh, in different, in different cultures were received and what they meant to those audiences and how, what impact that had on on radio on the culture of radio and the what records would get played at, ra- at radio stations what audiences would get at radio stations i don't know what flexi discs mean to the culture of sound but i think that there's a mystery there that i want to i want to dig into no, there definitely is like there are there are genres that exist because of the flexi disc as there are for any medium 
Right. What are those? Yeah. Can you can you cite any offhand? Uh, novelty songs on the backs of cereal boxes that run exactly three minutes. Uh, 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 there, well, flexi discs were also a big uh, like missionary tool. So there are a ton of flexi discs that have Jesus songs on them that were you know imported into Central Africa. Uh, you know, uh, and they're also uh, also part of that phenomenon. You know, were uh, were acoustic record players that you could build out of a piece of cardboard, which we are also going to build. Not to talk about, you know, religious conversion, but, you know. Right. Because it's genuinely interesting. The, the, yeah, the anecdote we use for that one is the golden record, uh, you know, on Voyager. You are, you are an alien life form, and suddenly one day a record crashes down. How, How do, do you, you play it? it? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm curious. You decided as part of a Dogbotic, which is your sound uh-huh. laboratory, to start teaching these classes, uh, you know, a little about 18 months ago or so, correct? Sure, sure. And... What made you think, one, that there was a demand to learn these things? Um, and how has the response been as a result? <laughs> well, I had no idea there was going to be a demand for anything. I just, I, I, I wasn't doing very much at the beginning of the pandemic outside of freaking out and wrapping up the couple projects I had. So uh, it, it was really kind of a fluke, but uh, I'm very happy it worked out. <laughs> I very much enjoy teaching. Uh, the response has been incredibly positive. It's, um, it, it's amazing. I, uh, I'm really happy that uh, it seems that a lot of people have, I don't know, felt that this material was kind of gatekept from them in some sense. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and it's true. Like the internet is a very lonely place to learn electronics, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, no, you know, so, uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm happy that we could be, you know, a bit of, you know, an, an antidote to those forces, but, uh, it's also just been really nice to see people genuinely like interact with each other, given how dismal this, uh, past year has been. And it's been wonderful to see people forge friendships and creative working relationships, uh, you know, directly relating to the material that you worked on together. Right. So, you know, I, I, I think that's great. I, I've learned a ton. I learned more from my students than they learned from me, most certainly. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely set the stage for a whole bunch of projects that uh, I definitely never would have considered doing a year and a half ago. But now, you know. And it's online. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I want to. Yeah, we take you know we with every new year you take new things for granted about about the condition Mm -hmm. of yourself in the world, right? And you know certainly most of us are aware that at least in the United States in the last year a lot of things have gone online that could have been online before, Um, but but the very you know nature of not being safe to gather. Forced them into, into into a new venue and forced folks like yourself, Kirk, to, to innovate ways in which we can we could have a workshop in which everyone's hacking physical things. And then you, but you know, you decide. Well, that means I need to, you know, like a correspondence course. Frankly, would have been um, in the pre-internet age, packaged together everything someone would need into one right. nice box. And I mean, it's. You know, in some ways, it's not easier, but we take for granted the idea of bringing everyone into a classroom and say, like, oh, well, we'll just get all the stuff that everyone needs to do and we're just going to teach them versus I need to kind of make something I can put into a box and ship to somebody fairly efficiently that that they then at their place can – I have a high confidence they can do it whether they're, you know, in San Francisco or, or Berkeley or in Finland – 
and 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 do this you know synchronously right i think that's the other part i want to kind of call attention to that i understand so this is synchronously everybody's online at the same time via oh, yeah. a, via web conference and so on the one hand you're everyone's sort of doing this right together soldering things pulling apart cassette recorders putting together the components of a synthesizer and you know also sharing their as they would in a classroom or a laboratory this works this doesn't work Hey, my tape played backwards. I didn't expect that to happen. <laughs> right. You know, and so would you have considered had we not had this pandemic? I mean, had you considered doing this just in in your in your laboratory in in, in mm. Berkeley, California? Well, it's. I mean, yeah, doing doing workshops was always you know it was kind of in the cards for a long time, uh, but I didn't anticipate they would start you know this quickly and in the you know, in, in the volume that they have, I think the, the great thing about the pandemic exclusively vis-a-vis, you know, these workshops is that, uh, there was no expectation for us to be doing them in person, but because of that, we did realize that, you know, there's uh there's no way we could be filling these workshops if it were just people from the Bay area. And, you know, what makes it so interesting is that it's not all people from the Bay area. It's people, you know, it's people from Russia. It's people from Latin America. It's people from the Midwest, you know, and they're all in a room together and they're all exchanging ideas and they all have very different reasons for why they took the workshop, which I don't know that I always think is really interesting. What one thing that's been interesting for me to see is, you know, you're a young person teaching these classes and mm-hmm. there seem to be a lot of young people who found out about it um, the way young people do on social media. <laughs> and, and I, and I think back to, and, and the packaging is all very friendly. Um, I, I think back to the radio, the radio world where there's big concern about, uh, particularly in engineering is, you know, training that next generation of engineers. And there aren't as many young people kind of coming up in radio engineering. But then I see in your classes, all these young people who are really interested in tinkering. So I, I would love to hear what your advice might be for, for the radio industry and for radio engineers. And because it seems like you've happened, you, you have figured out how to, energize young people including teenagers because i know you do you did a camp over the summer for teens as well what is the magic i'll use the word magic again what's the magic (laughs) behind connecting with young people about technology and i know you're throwing radio into your next workshop too so (laughs) oh geez i don't yeah i should definitely not be the person uh giving advice on how to connect with young people but um uh the uh I don't know. I, I kind of think a lot of it is it's communities of practice. I think, you know, people people have a knack for being very interesting. You know, I think a lot of uh, I think a lot of workshops uh, talk down to people, I think. And, you mm. know, I and I don't think that that's very useful. I think uh, I think, you know, if you're enthusiastic, you can also get other people enthusiastic. But by and large, I mean, like, you know, not to be Captain Obvious here, but like the electronics world is, you know, it's pretty homogenous. And, you know, I'm a white male presenting person. And, you know, I have not found it terribly friendly. So 
God knows how horrible it is for absolutely everybody else. Like, you know, this is so obvious, but I, you know, I'm so annoyed when, you know, you, you hear, you know, I don't know, people from industry or academia do this, you know, how do we get more people into this thing? And then you're like, well, yes, you're running a $5,000 summer workshop. Like, yes, no wonder you are not, you're not, you're not, you're not making a space accessible. You're not, you know, making a space friendly for people coming from the outside to ask questions or you know, and I think that's the the radio world is also very guilty of that. I think the, the music composition world is very guilty of that, which is why I think, you know, I've had such a difficult time calling myself a composer. But, you know, I don't know. That's a I don't, I don't know what to do with that, though. No, I, I hear you because, I mean, you used the word earlier, you used the word yeah. gatekeeper, right? Right. And, and that people felt that there was gatekeeping. And I think that that is true for so many especially fields that have a technical component to it and and maybe some degree of technical mastery to it. And that for some folks, and it is certainly cultural and it's bound up in privilege, it's bound up in, in privilege of all sorts, not just, you know, certainly gender, socioeconomic and racial privilege as well of, you know, once I was able to to achieve, you know, to jump over these hurdles and learn these things and put in all those hours, uh, everyone behind me needs to do the same thing as well. Yeah, that's how cycles of abuse get perpetrated and everything. It's, you know, it's it's when you enter an industry that's filled with people that are being horrible to you. And that's because they were treated horribly. And now they believe they can treat like I. I it makes no sense to me. But no, yes, I agree. I, I very yeah. much agree. This, well, not, this is not a big frustration of mine. The only people who survive a culture that is that cruel are right. the people who themselves have a, a a skill, a facility with the cruelty. Right. You know, so they so they they make it to the end, and then they're the ones who have uh, the positions of privilege, and they're middle aged, and they have the jobs. Uh, they wouldn't have gotten there if they didn't know how to raise their voice and push people around. Uh, mm-hmm. in the end and you know uh not to mention when uh if the people above them sort of value bullies little bullies then they make they get more you know anyway that's yeah it. i think that's why great business people don't tend to be great people <laughs> there um, i said it Hot yeah take. yeah they went well and and they why they go to space but unfortunately they come back and yeah uh, <laughs> he came back so quickly i didn't expect that i thought there was going to be a little bit longer of a dramatic pause but you know, it was like a touch and go. Uh, Kirk, I wanted to know if you have a sense. So, so you have a sense, you know, for the folks who are coming into these workshops now and maybe about how many, like many dozens of people now have taken uh, your workshops in the course of, of the last year or so. Uh, yeah, it's in the hundreds now. Wow. Yeah. Definitely. And are they, do you get a sense? Because I think of, of how they've come to know that this sort of hacking is even possible and that they would want to learn about it. I mean, I mean, I think you have to have a certain consciousness to even think it's possible. And that's one of the reasons why maybe in 1994, it was less prominent that people were hacking cassette recorders, even though cassette recorders were far more ubiquitous in life um, because it was less likely the notion ever occurred to you that you could or would do such a thing or that, or even if you'd heard the results of it, you didn't actually know that's what was behind the scenes. Do you have a sense for, for why folks and especially young folks, why this is even in, in their, in their purview, in their sites that, that, that it's something that one might do and that, wow, I can learn how to do it myself. Hmm. That's a great question. Well, two things. One, I think for some reason, 
something about the classes just seem to attract genuinely interesting and creative people. And so people come from all sorts of creative backgrounds, be they, you know, illustrators or actors or writers or, yes, musicians, too. Uh, but it's it's really lovely how everyone finds a way to make the material part of their own creative. Do, do you advertise? Like, I mean, I mean, there's discovery is itself its own problem right are you advertising i mean how are is it word of mouth how are people even finding out about your your classes it's it's mostly word of mouth like you know we we do have a little social media presence and stuff like that but you know it's it's a very niche activity Mm -hmm. so it's you know it's a it's a very um you know, it's 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 hard to find exactly the people you're looking for, but I, I find you know w- we tend to speak the same language as the people that would be interested in these workshops. Uh, but the the other thing I would say is also like like you know why is this possible now? I actually do think a major reason is that the internet has brought awareness to stuff, and I think like uh, uh, so a, a weird fact about me: I used to be a semi-professional juggler. And like at age 16, I was on the track to become a professional juggler. And people told me that was ridiculous. And then I ended up in electroacoustic art music. So, you know, much better. <laughs> but a thing that I did notice is that um, the standard for juggling in between when I was jonesing to become a professional juggler 10 years ago and today it's it's exponential, and I believe a reason for that is the internet proving to people that certain things are possible. And they're and you, literally they're yeah. watching on YouTube or TikTok or something, right? And learning techniques and seeing what's possible, and then doing it. If in, you know a fifteen ball way. flash is possible, right? You you know that you are practicing towards a thing that is indeed doable. Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, I was gonna drop into the into the conversation. Just that uh, I'm gonna use the word influencer. And then wash my mouth out with a cup of with a sip of coffee. But there are people <laughs> on the internet now who are creating artwork using tape loops on Instagram channels. We'll just I'll just name amulets. I have a theory that amulets was the path. Who's from, an artist who is a here yes, in in Portland, would, Oregon, where, where Eric and I are sighted? Yeah, amulets does uh, an, an artist here in Oregon who sits down at their desk, points the camera straight down at the desk and takes a you know a tape machine from goodwill and turns it into a musical instrument right before your eyes all edited down to a real nice bite-sized instagram video chunk and before you know it has created a sound work that is unique uh visibly visibly taking place right in front of you on this on the desk and also sounds like nothing you've ever heard before i think you know there's so you can just you can hear, see, and enjoy all in the span of uh, stopping your scrolling uh, sound work that that um, uh, yeah. wasn't even possible to to think about. With technique you, like, laid bare in, in yeah. a certain way, in which you know it may not be instantaneously grokkable, but uh, with, with anyone who 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 had their interest peaked could certainly analyze. And 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 of course, the nice thing about I think a lot of folks. You know, and it's probably true of the jugglers as well. Someone like Amulets or other, uh, you know, online artists will will also go through and explain what they do. Right? There's a certain mm-hmm. transparency to it that you know might not have been true. You know, and people may have been less willing to show. I don't know if this would have been true of say juggling. Would would it, would a juggler have been guarded of their proprietary techniques for fear that somebody somebody steal them right in a way that that you know a mus- a magician 
you know, uh, uh, will, will, will closely guard uh, their techniques. Uh, and, you know, I think a magician is a good analogy there. Yeah. You know, and and certainly, you know, I don't know that, you know, as we talked about the gatekeeping, you know, what maybe perhaps it's the fact that a lot of these artists are are maybe not coming strictly from the academic or strict traditions of being being musicians and such. And so also are not inculcated with that culture of of making things proprietary. I don't know, Kirk. What do you think? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, the the difference between me... Well, I don't know. I feel like when a magic trick is really well done, uh, learning the secret to it can... Uh, I don't know. It shouldn't, shouldn't ruin the trick for you. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure I'm making a lot of magicians mad here. I know you, you're, you're big with the magician demo. <laughs> but the... Uh, you know, I, I find uh, I, I find telling people how artistic technique works to be to be really cool. I do think it is like telling people the secret to a magic trick. You can watch yeah. their eyes widen up when they realize, oh, that's how that process works. And conveniently, it's also a great way for teaching people how their stuff works. Yeah, and, so you and know, learning, all- and learning about sound and how sound is created and the technology that goes into it, uh, and how music is composed. All of these. Learning events make people better listeners. They open people's ears uh, to hear art in more detailed and complex ways. And so, you're by giving away the secrets to the kingdom of sound, you're creating, uh, you know, the most um, eager audience possible for more sound. There's there's no there's no loss. You know, I've never thought about it that way, but I think that's I think that's lovely. Like. Yeah, we should all be working to be better listeners all the time. Uh, I, Kirk, we're talking to you today. You are the founder of this music lab, Dogbotic. There are workshops uh, where where people do sound work and learn. Uh, and uh, we we've never we we you know th- we're here on Radio Survivor. Uh, what where what is your background with radio? Where where does radio come in? Where does radio come into my life? Oh boy. Well, um, I had a radio show at one point. Um, <laughs> but to be honest, I don't know. Radio uh, radio actually didn't play as big a part in my life as a lot of other media did. Um, but I, you had a radio show. That's <laughs> But I did have a radio show when I was in college, yeah. It was a radio show about radio. And it was, uh, yeah, it was like what you do, but not cool. Um, so tell us more. Where 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 was the show? Where oh did my you, god! Wh- wh- what station were you on? We need to we need oh, to dig this in. This was W O B C ninety one point five FM, a very small station. Is that Oberlin? The, in, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, you can see you're dealing with the with the the with the real college radio nerds here. So it was a yeah, show about go. radio. It was a show about radio. It was called the Oberlin Transmitter. It aired a couple of times. It was you know. It was quintessential college radio, as said by Strong Bad, dead air, um, dead air, you know, but <laughs> it was a lot of it was a lot of hapless freshmen running around. But I, I had a great time with it. And uh, it, de- it definitely got me thinking about yeah, radio as, as a political. Hey, what, what does it mean to yeah. be about radio? Like, what do you mean by it was a radio show about radio? 
It was interviews with different people about different key moments in radio history, okay. uh, about different radio technologies. Um, it's where I first started doing research about shortwave radio, interestingly enough, because I sound designed the show entirely with shortwave radio, because it sounds great, right? Like, everyone needs a shortwave. Um, and, and yeah, I, yeah p- p- please don't Google it. <laughs> I, I mean, you know we are. I, I hope... I really hope we can put links in the tell show us, notes. Tell us about how – so you sound design your college radio show with shortwave. Does that mean you built – I mean you that you broadcast sound over shortwave just for the express purpose of recording it to cut it back up again? Well, it, w- it was all done with a receiver, and it was one that the physics department happened to have. Um, I have worked with radio in other like more creative contexts, though. I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but I did a project actually very early in the pandemic uh, with a-, a theater director named Lillian Wooten White, who uh, actually plays the uh, disembodied voice from 1995 in the cassette hacking kit. <laughs> um, but she's a she's a wonderful director and actress, and she worked in this production in North Carolina that it was. Um, it was uh, it was a production that was done entirely in a parking lot. You would drive your car to the parking lot outside the theater, uh, and then the production was a giant piece that would take place around you, and all of the audio was communicated to you via your car radio. So we actually had a transmitter, and it was yeah, the, the play was all about um, a giant escaping in the hills of North Carolina. So you know we had the radio broadcast start before you got there. Uh, we had all sorts of uh, they had these amazing shadow puppets that were used all around. So it, it was it was it was a fun little creative problem to be in. Uh, you're doing a play where everyone has to be inside a closed car, and <laughs> and the content of the, the play is, is being it's a radio play that's being performed. But there's also visuals, correct? There are also visuals, but yeah, the uh, the way that we cast the play was the uh, it's it's run by a person that's running a late night radio station, just calling out to everyone in the hills, and mm-hmm. so you see them at the front, they're broadcasting, and then you know the like large parts of it are done in voiceover. Uh, it was a really interesting project. Was this pre-pandemic? This was during the pandemic. Okay, the reason yeah. that yeah that right. it had to be in cars was because of the pandemic. Again, uh, a, we've talked about this on the show a number of times. How. I mean, this is we've talked about this at the beginning of today's interview that the that the pandemic by forcing people out out of groups and into isolation sort of um, re revigorated. I made that word up. Reinvigorated. Uh, re, reinvigorated uh, radio's uh, ability to communicate to people um, and, and to form groups out of out of uh, solo individuals or or at least family units. Um, Well, and also I think the interesting ways that theater utilized radio during the pandemic, whether, you know, doing radio dramas instead of a a stage show, but also like Kirk is mentioning that you could do a drive-in experience, which, you know, we've heard about drive-in experiences during the pandemic for things like graduations, but this is an interesting hybrid that you're talking about where it's a theater experience and a drive-in experience and a radio experience, so... That's transmission arts. It is transmission art, right? You do, like, we kind of felt the only way we could really do it is if we drew attention to the radio as an artifact in the play itself. Otherwise, you know. But yeah, it's uh, Burning Coal Theater. Celine and the Dream Eater was the name of that production. I think the review called the sound design uh, distracting. (laughs) (laughs) 
so, so there's and what, that. And what did you gain? What did you gain by doing, by doing this piece of work, in you know by 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 utilizing radio as the as the means of transmission? You know the work. You could you could have passed out CDs to people to play in their car, I suppose. Um, you could have emailed them the files to play off their phone. Oh, you could have streamed it. Yeah. What 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 was gained uh, by doing this artwork with radio? Well, number one, it uses the interface that's already in your car. So, like uh, five dollar word here, but uh, you are diegetically <laughs> in the same universe as the play as it's happening, which I think is really quite nice. You you are driving in your car. You are still very much in your car. You are using the radio that is in your car. Whereas if we give you a CD, it, you know, it really does break the fourth wall in a you know in a way that's you know. It's not very subtle. Uh, but also, if you give someone something physical, you know, like a CD or something, this is an experience that they ostensibly can play back again and again, which, you know, we, we don't want you to know when the production is over. We, we really do want, you know, the ephemerality of radio to be a big part of it. And also because, you know, it was live and everything was, you know, choreographed with people walking around and being broadcast and stuff like that. It, it, it had to be done live. Um, so, you know, we, we have people with microphones that are actually being transmitted in real time as, you know, along with ensembles and, you know, sound design. It occurs to me that another, another uh, strength of the work and then really like, um, a part of why radio is wonderful is that the art that you were making is on the same radio that people have lived with their entire lives. And, and when we get to make radio, uh, for people like it's not um it's not an isolation like when 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 the words or the music or the sound is broadcast on the radio it's the radio like uh today today the radio is is my sound work but yesterday and going back all the way to now to our ancestors in radio like it's it all you know um last week uh the the episode that just aired we talked about um the work of of um these detective stories that aired on the radio in the thirties and forties. And I personally had never heard them. And then because of this interview, I listened to many of them and it was crystal clear that even though I'd missed the entire experience of listening to these detective stories on the, in the thirties and forties, that in fact I caught up very quickly because the work that they had been doing, telling stories on the radio is the work that, uh, fed into the entire culture of television and now Netflix and HBO and all of this. It it's a storytelling culture that has its beginnings in radio, and you could, and so you're um, you're a part of the, you're part of that great flow of of culture, um, starting starting even if you're unaware of it. A cool, a cool thing about that that I just I, I learned pretty recently. Uh, I had a professor who wrote a big book about the history of television pre-broadcast, which is a really weird topic. And I read it, and one of the things that he continually brings up is in the early days of uh, of television, people talked about television as if it were radio far more than they talked as television as if it were film. The important thing to people was that this was a live broadcast mm. that would only happen mm. once, not the fact that it was moving image, which I think is crazy because that's obviously when I think of TV, I think of moving image. Yeah, and, and it's important uh, just in case, like since I um, talk all the time to a young person who's ex- 
incredibly intelligent and incredibly media savvy, just to remind people that you might not know that in the 20th century, at the beginning of these mediums, they all were, uh, they all, they all happened relatively simultaneously that there was film, there was movies you could see in the movie theater at the same time as there was radio that you could listen to largely at home. Uh, and then TV came along in the middle in the 1950s. Um, that fact, well, even much, lost. much earlier than that. Right. Um, no, but I mean the popularity. popularity. And, and, and what's also, I think important to that live aspect, right. Is that, um, there was not a technology to record television for, for quite some time. I mean, the way they recorded television was to point a movie camera at a television screen. Very expensive. And, 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 and similarly with radio, they could transcribe it to discs, to records, essentially. But that expensive. was an expensive and, cu- and cumbersome process. So it was until, well, until the really for the 50s for radio and the 60s for television, um, you know, you were really caught either having, if you wanted to have pre-recorded programming programs, you had to use these other media like film or records or you, and, and you didn't record very much. <laughs> it really was live and there really are fewer artifacts uh, as a result. Um, what's interesting here to me, Kirk, and what you're doing with Dogbotic is that you're, you may be doing things with synthesizers, analog technologies like tape, et cetera. But you did you fully situated it in a in a contemporary context. This is not a retro activity. You know, this is you know you're it's it is fully of of the time, and it is sort of the advice I heard you say very early on in the interview talking with Jennifer was, you know, if you get an interesting noise out of your modified synthesizer or cassette recorder or whatever, record it because you never know if you're going to get it again. Right. <laughs> you know, and you're, and you're, and that would have been maybe a difficult proposition or a more difficult proposition 35 years ago. But today is relatively simple because you're probably, you're taking for granted someone's got some sort of audio recording device in the mix somewhere, even if, I, even if it's just their, their, their smartphone. I'll pull, I'll pull a metaphor down from the sky as we're, as we're rounding out today's episode where you want to, grab that sound in the moment because you're not sure if that that device you've hacked will ever uh, reproduce it. Uh, similarly, when we have conversations with people who have devoted their life's work to sound and to media, it's it's nice to to capture those moments and record them to share with our audience. Um, cause you never know when these conversations will come, will come around again. Uh, Kirk Pearson, thank you so much for joining us today on radio survivor. Thank it's you all. Really this fun. has been such a pleasure. Um, I wonder, Oh, tell us about bedsheet ghosts. Oh, about bedsheet ghosts. Well, sure. We could talk about bedsheet ghosts. So, um, Many years ago, I uh, I got really interested in the idea of, you know, like why ghosts look like blobs, you know, and, uh, I thought it was really interesting that when you look up images of ghosts and you go through, you know, corpuses of data of, you know, old ghost photographs that um, we don't start talking about ghosts as if they're like, you know, people wandering around with bedsheets on their heads until about the 1870s. And so it became pretty obvious to me the more that I tried to look at drawings and photos of ghosts that bedsheet ghosts are an invention of photography. And in a weird way, a bedsheet ghost is just an anthropomorphized lens flare. 
So I know that doesn't sound very interesting on the surface, but the weird thing about it is like, imagine that from the perspective of somebody in 1870, you are told that the photograph is here and it's going to revolutionize everything. We're not going to be painting in a few years. This is going to, you know, criminals are going to go to prison because of things that are caught on a photograph. You know, this is going to change everything. This is time travel for all intents and purposes. Even the French, like, literally referred to lenses. There's a famous André Bazin essay that makes note of this, but they literally referred to lenses as l'objectif, like, like almost through World War II. Like, literally, the objective, what, what was in the photograph was objectively the truth. So then imagine that, you're told all of this amazing stuff about the photograph, and then you see your first lens flare. What the heck do you make of that? Naturally, you presume it's something that you couldn't see with your own real eyes, right? And just like that, we took an aberration, a distortion in a recording medium, and turned it into the universal definition of fear. And I think that's bizarre. But what's amazing about that is that story holds true throughout the history of all new media, no matter what medium you're looking at. And that's actually exactly what how we start ear retraining. It's with a conversation about bedsheet ghosts, and we give you some cyanotype paper, and you go ghost hunting from the comfort of your own backyard. Uh, it's you know, like it's voices really, in the static, right? It's, exactly. Well, sorry, go on with that. Well, I mean, that often, uh, you know, the supernatural phenomena have been attributed to, 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 to voices heard in the static, right? And, I mean, as somebody who has spent many a night l- listening for distant radio signals, you, you can believe you hear a lot of things in, in what is the noise. Uh, and you do spend some time going, is that a, am I getting a pirate radio station? Is that, is that? Morse code or is that in my head or is it just you know my poor brain doing its best to make sense out of out of electromagnetic chaos exactly right like the it seems like the underlying thing you're saying there paul is like it's the uh it's the it's the form that influences what content you're looking for like you know and that's you know i think i think that's kind of the most critical lesson in my entire life of music making it's, you know, that, you know, you can toy with form and toying with form tends to produce much more interesting results than toying with content. It, it makes me think about how, you know, if, as we started at the beginning, like if, if you, if you were born today and you got a DAW and you started playing with it, you have all of these, uh, sound design tools that are laid before you in the machine, um, but part of the origin of those sound design tools comes from the machines that came before the DAW. Like, so there might not be um, a reverb plugin if <laughs> if sound didn't bounce around a room and sound so beautiful that you needed to reproduce it, you needed to create an electronic room just to get that sound back. Um, mm-hmm. And so understanding the physical origins or at least just the older origins of these sound design tools um, is fascinating, but it also can help you as an artist or a listener. Um, Again, listening to this week, listening to old radio shows, showing me origin stories of, of where, you know, 
Netflix as an example. You know, Netflix has all these detective shows with murder happening, and to listen to an eighty-year-old story that I had completely ignored for the first forty-four years of my life, and hearing hearing these origins of these murder stories, and and sort of getting it right, like it, you know, just to throw in the fifth radio survivor footnote we talked about um mayor of east town very recently because mayor of east town the hbo the hit hbo detective show uh dropped jennifer waits's alma mater alma mater college radio station into four scenes from the film and uh, or the television series um but so but mayor of east town to, to me was um as a as a viewer was was uh my new parts of my brain lit very brightly because i also because we spoke with um oh i always do this to jennifer i, I was Catherine martin because we spoke with Catherine martin i'm leaving that in i'm not going to edit myself smart uh because we spoke with Catherine martin who's an expert in lady detectives you know the the my viewing of mayor of Easttown um was was enriched because i understood that the main character of that show that there were lady detectives that come before mayor of easttown the main character of mayor of easttown uh well and, and, and we we've had so many of these reminders i mean this is what i enjoy about radio survivor is is kind of looking at the world through the lens of radio and and being reminded that television genres come from radio and all the naysayers who say that radio is dead and we shouldn't be interested in radio. We're constantly being reminded of why radio continues to be important, you know, not only for television genres, but for art and experimental music. And, you know, we've, we've had so many of these conversations about how radio is utilized and understood. And, and I think, you know, Kirk talking about what you did during the pandemic with radio is a perfect example of the ongoing relevance of the radio waves. Can I ask one more uh, kind of random tangent um, question? Absolutely. Um, so, so I was reading about your Watson fellowship where you traveled the world um, researching experimental musical instruments. And I would just love to know more about what you found. What, what were these experimental musical instruments? Oh boy. So um yeah, so the the Watson, uh, the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship. It's this weird thing that was started by, uh, well, it was started in like the '60s. But effectively, it's uh, if you get it, you you have to leave the country for a full calendar year. You can't come back, and you work on this ridiculous project that you pitch the foundation. And mine was, I want to go around meet people that make experimental musical instruments and compose pieces for them like fresh out of conservatory. So um, I decided that was a good idea. And um, <laughs> I went to uh, 20 countries over the course of a year, which, you know, was, uh, which was an interesting choice. Uh, but I worked with, uh, gosh, over 50 people, uh, brilliant, brilliant people that made all sorts of interesting things. Uh, I, I didn't spend the same amount of time in all 20 countries, but, you know, I worked with, um, geez, I worked with, um, an orchestra in Paraguay where all of the instruments are made out of recycled materials. I worked with a guy who develops electronic juggling props in Korea that talk to Ableton and synthesize fun digital sounds. I worked with an Embira maker in Zimbabwe. I worked with a dance company in Costa Rica. 
Um, and so, I mean, like, it, it was amazing. I got to meet a ton of fascinating people. Uh, and I still work with many of them, too. So now when I'm like, oh, I need a, here's a job and it needs an orchestra of conch shells. I just call Andres up and I'm like, hey, <laughs> I can use your services. So, you know, so, so it's great. Um, it definitely changed a lot about the work I do. And it also made me totally abandon any hope at coming up with a definition for musical instrument. Because <laughs> at a, every, yeah. <laughs> I love that Sorry. you had a Watson Fellowship because uh, episode number 181 of Radio Survivor, we interviewed a different recipient of the Watson Fellowship. Oh, uh, who was Julia, it? Julia Thomas. I'm reading from our. I know Julia. Yeah, yes. Julia Thomas visited over a dozen community radio stations over the course of a year. Stations in Nepal, India, Zimbabwe, South Julia Africa, is a Ecuador. lovely human. Julia was a uh, and she was the second. Our, one she was of the most second best. Uh, she was, and she was the second Watson fellow we had on the show. Right. February 2019. <laughs> Who was the first? Forward. Sylvia Thomas. So we had two Thomases. Right. Yes, Julia Thomas. Related, and Sylvia, I don't think no, so. No. Just a wonderful uh, coincidence of radio and Watson fellowships. And they both visited community radio stations um, all over the world. Julia is possibly the reason cassette happening, cassette hacking happened also. Uh, it was uh, Julia gave me, she, she visited the Bay and we had a, we had a, like, we, you know, we met up for a couple hours and like walked around and she told me she was working. Uh, she was going back to Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, uh, where she was working in a radio station there. So we were like right next to each other over the Watson and didn't know it. Uh, but she told me about how uh, one like partner radio station was distributing uh, material on cassette to little combis, like little buses that would then, you know, go out, you know, into the countryside to deliver people. Um, and so cassettes were actually the simplest form of transmission in those cases. That started me on a six-month research project on cassettes being used in the 2010s, and that led me to cassette hacking. So there you go. Full circle. Amazing. Wow. If I had yeah. known that at the beginning, if I had known that last week, that would have been how we started today's episode. But it's Oh, yeah. No, that's cool. It. Well, my sincere thanks to Kirk Pearson for joining us today as a guest on Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein. I also want to just uh, give my sincere thanks to Jennifer Waits and Paul Reismandel, co-hosts and co-producers of the program, for their work on this week's episode. Radio Survivor is a reader and listener-supported enterprise. To find out more, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast wherever you get your time-shifted radio, or you can listen online at radiosurvivor.com. The show notes for today's episode are also up at radiosurvivor.com. This was episode number 309. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.